This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Heart disease doesn't listen to lockdowns. Heart disease doesn't say, oh, oh, just a second. Lockdown over there? Well, we're not going to afflict anybody in that area then because there's a pandemic going on and there in a lot doesn't happen that way. In fact, we're looking at 600,000 Canadians who are living with heart failure. And every year, almost 100,000 patients are diagnosed. And our next guest knows exactly what that feels like. Because at 23 years old, he was diagnosed with heart failure. Please welcome the co-founder and vice president of the Heart Life Foundation, Mark Baines, to London Live. Mark, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you? Not too bad. I love the fact that you are doing well. So if you were diagnosed with heart failure at 23, how old are you now? I'm 35 now. 35 now. And yeah. obviously from 23 to 35, you've lived with a diagnosis, but uh, I like the, the sound of you doing well. We'll get to that in just a minute. Take us back in your story. Take us back to when you were 23 and being diagnosed with heart failure. What happened? Of course, yeah, and it was uh, it was definitely a different experience than how I'm feeling now. At 23 years old, I was entering a new stage of my life. I had graduated university. I had just got into my first career, traveled around the world, and came back and started my adult life. And I, I got what I thought was a cold. The cold turned into what I thought was a flu. And when the chest pain started and I wasn't able to walk up my stairs without feeling short of breath or, or lay down uh, or sleep without coughing... I thought it was time for a second opinion, and when I went into the emergency room, I went through a series of tests, a lot of I've never heard of before, and uh, the emergency doctor came in with a concerned look on his face and told me, Mark, you have heart failure, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is enlargement of the heart, and your heart is effectively only pumping at 5 to 10%, and I can tell you at that time, I did not feel well. So you didn't feel well, but to think your heart was pumping at 5 or 10% of what it should be, did you feel that bad? You know, it got to a point, and my heart failure, I would say, progressed from when I went to my family doctor who really said, Mark, it's probably your asthma with maybe a flu coming on board. In those few weeks when I went to the emergency department, I significantly declined. And, you know, like I said, it got to the point where I was actually sleeping at my kitchen table because I couldn't lay down flat sleeping at so how were you doing that you were you were in one of the chairs leaning on the table yeah that's it and and that was all i could do to get my rest right and i had no idea what this was i mean if you think about heart failure heart disease for someone at the age of 23 those two words heart and failure are never really used in the same sentence right and so I had no idea that this was what was going on, and I didn't understand what the signs and symptoms were for heart failure either, nor do a lot of people in, in Canada. No, that's just what you were just describing, a cough, feeling like you have a cold or a flu, sure, shortness of breath maybe, but you wouldn't look at those things. You'd think, yeah, this, whatever I've got, this is kind of being hard on me. This is, this is wiping me out. We're talking with Mark Baines, who is the co-founder and vice president of HeartLife Foundation. We'll talk about what they are doing in just a little bit, but roughly 12 years ago, Mark was diagnosed with heart failure. So when a doctor comes in and says, Mark, you've got heart failure, how do you react? What does your mind do? You know, the, the first question I asked 
was, am I going to die? Uh, because I really had no idea what heart failure was, what this diagnosis meant for the rest of my life. And that was my first question. And, and the physician said, plain and simply, no, but we have a lot of work to do to get you better. So we'll go through that work, but let's talk about those signs and symptoms again. If we're to kind of map out some of the typical signs and symptoms, what are they? Yeah, and, and you know, these are some of the things that I didn't think of that, you know, now I think about now, um, you know, makes sense because I know more about the disease, but it's that shortness of breath, looking at potential swelling of legs or bloating in the abdomen, having low energy levels when you didn't have low energy levels before, uh, rapid weight gain, for instance, you know, because you're retaining fluid, uh, persistent cough uh, that's ongoing. And, and those are some of the, the major symptoms. And, and, you know, at night, you can look at nausea and vomiting as well. But those are some of the major symptoms that I was unaware of, and I think Canadians are unaware of as well. We're talking with Mark Baines, co-founder and vice president of HeartLife Foundation. So when the doctors told you, we've got a lot of work to do, what was that work all about? Because if your heart's beating at 5 to 10% and it's enlarged and there are other issues going on, you would think you'd just want to sit really still. What did they have you do? Yeah, you, yeah, you would think so, right? You kind of want to curl up in a bed and, and lay down, but you know that that's not going to get you better. And, and our healthcare professionals uh, in Canada are amazing. And we put a plan in place that was medi- medication therapy, um, I needed device therapy as well, so I had a implantable cardio device, which is essentially a, a pacemaker and a, a lifesaver that would, if something happened to my heart, could shock me back. And then it was also about lifestyle. It was about being active on a regular basis again, so building up my cardiac rehab and following a heart-healthy diet. And that is what helped me get through the next few really important months and you know really changed my trajectory, as well as understanding the experience of heart failure. One of the key things that my cardiologist did for me was introduce me to two other patients and caregivers that went through the same experience because I had no idea what heart failure was or or what I was. I thought my life was over. I was 23 years old and now I had heart failure. But I understood that with the right tools and resources, people can live a good quality of life. That's good to know. That's fantastic to know. Because when you describe, okay, you, you had to make some changes in life or whatever, if you're traveling around the world, it's not like you were sitting on a couch eating Cheetos and watching movies. It sounds yeah. like you were you were a fairly active guy. Were there things in your lifestyle at that point that needed changing? No, I was a, I was a very active guy. I was working out three or four times a week. I was following a healthy diet. Uh, I've always kept in good shape and, and played sports. And it just kind of goes to show that anyone can get heart failure. Uh, for me, it was a viral infection that, you know, just happened to attack my heart and weaken the heart muscle. And for whatever reason, that puts you into a lifestyle that uh, that is a little bit different. But it sounds like things are going okay. And in fact, this has led you to Heart Life Foundation. Mark, tell us what this is. You're a co-founder and right now the vice president of Heart Life Foundation. It's a first in Canada. What does it do? Yeah, Heart Life Foundation was born in 2016 when I met my co-founder, Dr. Jillian Code. And we looked at the statistics around people with heart failure. And you mentioned it earlier. You said over 600 thousand Canadians are living with the disease, over 90,000 diagnosed every year. And we thought, why is there no patient group committed to advocating 
for people like us. Where's the voice? And so when we started the Heart Life Foundation, we went on a mission to really transform quality of life by engaging people living with heart failure, educating them on the tools and resources out there, and then really, you know, creating, allowing them to be empowered to take charge of their disease. So ask the right questions, get on the right medications, and self-manage uh, accordingly so they can also live the quality of life they want to live. And that wasn't taking place before? That that seems like it, it would easily be taking place. That wasn't happening. No, it wasn't happening, you know, and I mean, there, there are various organizations out there that, you know, do different things at different levels and, and focus on a broader sense of cardiovascular disease, heart disease, but there was no committed group uh, to heart failure. And, you know, one of the reasons being, and, you know, if you saw me when I was 23 and you see me now, you would have never thought, well, Mark, you have heart failure or you've had a heart transplant because heart failure is really a, a hidden disease. So it's not often talked about, even though it's one of the leading causes of hospitalization in the country. One of the things that you have released is the Canadian Heart Failure Patient and Caregiver Charter. Yes. What do we need to know about the charter? Yeah, so the charter and why we developed this, because we, we realize there's an inequality of care across Canada. And so the charter outlines a set of rights and responsibilities to help support a national standard of care. So it doesn't matter where you live in Canada, whether you're in an urban centre, rural area, if you're in BC or in Ontario, you should have that same expectation of quality of care, and the charter outlines what that should look like. Just got a note from Mike saying congratulations to you on managing heart disease and founding the support group you are discussing. So I want to pass that on to you. We're talking with Mark Baines, co-founder and vice president of Heart Life Foundation. So, Mark, as you look forward, you're only 35 years old. Are you still able to work out, be active, those sorts of things? What's that like for you right now? Yeah, I, you know, I've been fortunate in my care. I, I progress. I had my ups and downs. Uh, as a traditional heart failure journey goes, there are ups and downs. You know, the good times you're doing really well. The bad times, there are times when, you know, people think you might not make it. But I got through that with patient support, with caregiver support, peer-to-peer -peer support, family support. And now, you know, in 2018, I'm fortunate to say that I received a heart transplant and, you know, very grateful for my donor and my donor family and now living well. So living well now with my transplant. You know, there's no cure for heart failure. Of course, there's advanced therapies or things like transplant or device. And really, it's an extension of my disease. But I'm, I'm happy to say uh, with the support and, and as well as my donor and donor family that I, I'm living well. What was the transplant process like? So I was put on the transplant list in 2017 and on the list for 10 months uh, waiting for the, the perfect heart. And uh, I got the call on June 5th of 2018, went into the operating room that evening at about 10.30 and, and came out about 2.30. Um, and it was, it was a tough recovery, a very tough recovery for the first six months. And, and after I got over some of those new hurdles that I was facing uh, now, then progressed and got better. And, and every day now I'm pushed and, and driven to get better, to, to do well. And I've gotten back to my career. I've gotten back to some of my fitness goals and been able to travel as well. That's fantastic. And then is, is there anything that you have to do now with this new heart or anything that you cannot do now with your new heart? Yeah, you know, I, I'm still on medication. I'll be on anti-rejection medication uh, for the rest of my life. Um, and, and that's something that uh, I've built in as a, almost as a habit. Uh, you know, I'm able to do new things. And similar to the heart failure journey, 
you know, it's not about things we can't do. It's about doing things a little bit differently and maybe slowing down. And, you know, one of the reasons we created another tool, which is our, our patient journey, which people can check out on our website, is to really look at that experience of heart failure and understand that as much as that word heart failure has a negative connotation, it's actually about life and how you can utilize what you have to live the life you want to live. What a great outlook. Well, if you are looking for HeartLife Foundation, all you have to do is go to heartlife.ca. That's heartlife.ca. Mark, this is a phenomenal story because it has such a happy ending. Thank you for the attention you've taken because you could have been a guy who, yes, was diagnosed with heart failure and then didn't really do anything other than look after your own self. You're now making it better for everybody else. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I think all Canadians uh, should expect better care and deserve better care. And so I encourage everyone to check out heartlife.ca, look at the patient charter and journey. And, uh, you know, let's, let's do this together. Let's do it. Mark, thank you. Thank you so much. That's Mark Baines, co-founder and vice president of HeartLife Foundation. And it's actually part one of an interview that we're going to do because we're going to be speaking with Dr. Heather Ross, who is with the Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research and was recently named the Order of Canada. And Dr. Ross is involved in Heart Life Foundation, but is somebody who can look at research and look at what we're learning and look at what we need to advocate for and what maybe could be improved. We're still dealing with a pandemic. We've got all kinds of researchers who are doing what they can to figure out what COVID-19 is all about. And at the same time, maybe we're we're developing that, hey, you know, it's not just the pandemic. There's a lot more that's going on. There's a lot more that's always going on. And certainly heart issues, when you talk about affecting 600,000 people in this country and almost 100,000 being diagnosed with heart failure each and every year. That's big. That's huge. We had a chance to meet Mark Baines, co-founder and vice president of HeartLife Foundation. And Mark, if you missed it, if you're just joining us, you'll be able to hear that on our podcast a little later on when it is posted at 980cfpl.ca. But Mark told us the story. had kind of cold symptoms thought he had a cold thought maybe oh well maybe it's more like a flu and then he was having some difficulty catching his breath when he would walk up some stairs so he went to the doctor they ran some tests the doctor came in and said mark i know you're 23 years old but your heart is pumping at five to ten percent of what it should be it's enlarged there are some other issues you're 23 and you have heart failure and mark went on to co-found Heart Life Foundation. He's now a transplant recipient, and things are going pretty well. He told us that it's not that you can't do things, you just have to do them a little differently, sometimes a little bit more slowly. So let's take a moment and look at research, because this is another part of this. We have 600,000 people in this country who are diagnosed with heart failure, and that's a big number. And that means that research is being done to try and help each and every one of those people. We have almost 100,000 people diagnosed each and every year. And joining us right now is Dr. Heather Ross. 
And Dr. Ross is the division head of cardiology at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center and is the site lead for the Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research and was recently named to the Order of Canada. Dr. Ross, congratulations on the Order of Canada. Thank you very much. Uh, you a, have done... Tremendous honor. I, no doubt it, it is. And again, congratulations for receiving that honor. But they don't just hand those out. That is earned. And in this case, you have done an awful lot in terms of, of research in trying to determine how we make life better for people who, like Mark, are diagnosed with heart failure or other heart ailments. When we look at our heart, we, we kind of need it and we need it to be doing its job. What do we need to know about our heart that maybe we don't pay much attention to? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And I think uh, when you talk about heart failure, there's a lot that we do in the management of patients with heart failure to try to actively intervene before their symptoms get to the stage where they end up having to go to the hospital. Um, you know, hospitalization takes them away from their work and their loved ones. And, and it puts in a tremendous cost pressure on the on the healthcare system. And the more that we can get at things earlier uh, in heart failure, the more we can intervene sooner, and the more we can prevent that from happening. We can take that further upstream. So, what about preventing heart failure in the first place? And that gets us into trying to understand my favorite expression, which is my life is worth one hour a day. And this is Heart Month. Um, if we took that hour a day and we actually did exercise, uh, went shopping to get the right food, took the time to prepare our meals, those simple things are looking after our heart health and those will lower our risk of a heart attack, which is one of the commonest reasons that people develop heart failure. And it isn't that hard. It's my life is worth one hour a day. Um, and really, it's a, it's a philosophy that I think people can get behind. Well, we'll look at how much exercise and right foods in just a minute, but we can talk, Dr. Ross, about heart failure and heart attack. And we might sit here and think, well, those are the same thing. You, if you have heart failure, you're having a heart attack. Conversely, if you're having a heart attack, that's heart failure. Are they the same thing? They are, they're not the same thing. So a heart attack happens when there is a, a stoppage of blood flow to the heart muscle, and like all muscle, it needs oxygen to work. And when you block the blood flow to that muscle, the muscle starts to die. That's what a heart attack is. It's, it's when the flow is stopped and the muscle starts to die. Heart failure is a condition where the heart is not pumping adequately to meet the needs of the body. And it can either be because the heart is enlarged and not ejecting enough blood with each beat, or it can be because the heart is very stiff so it squeezes out the right amount, but it can't relax well enough to fill properly. And those are the two common types of heart failure that we see. In Canada, about 40 or 50 percent of heart failure is caused by people who have had a history of coronary artery disease or who have had a heart attack. So it is one of the commonest causes that leads to heart failure. Uh, and in that way, they are related, but they are not the same thing. Can we avoid heart failure or for some people is it just it's in the genes so there are clearly genetic causes of heart failure and they really we call them cardiomyopathy cardio heart myomuscle pathy abnormal so some people have genetic conditions that 
program abnormalities in the heart muscle that lead to weakening of the heart muscle or to abnormal thickening of the heart muscle that predisposes them to develop heart failure. And there's a lot of work being done to understand the genetic components and ultimately what could we do differently or intervene earlier to try to change the actual course of the of the history, and a lot of that work is being done at the Ted Rogers Center. So in that way, the genetic piece is, is challenging, but the coronary artery disease piece, that's the piece where we need to look at our diet and exercise, our weight, and our, our lifestyle behaviors, which clearly can have an impact. We're talking right now with Dr. Heather Ross, who is the division head in cardiology at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center at UHN and the site lead for Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research when we talk about that hour a day, you know, if you said to somebody, would you give an hour a day? Yeah, I, I, you know, I could probably find an hour a day, but when it comes down to it, that hour a day gets trimmed or a lot of times if you're looking at prioritizing, exercise and eating right aren't always those things. But let's start with exercise. Dr. Ross, what constitutes exercise that is going to help our hearts remain healthy? So the uh, American Heart Association recommends a minimum of 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise. So that would be very brisk walking or cycling, swimming. It's winter, so snowshoing or cross-country skiing. These, or, these would be examples of, of moderate type of exercise. And 150 minutes a week, when you break it down, three minutes for three times a week, 50 minutes, four times a week, 40 minutes. It's actually not that hard when you when you do it by the math to find that time and for many people you can actually try to get a two for one so put your exercise bike or your treadmill or your rowing machine in front of the tv and stream your favorite show while you're exercising and in in that way you try to actually squeeze a little extra time into your day as far as nutrition goes it always seems easy to say avoid the fatty stuff avoid fast foods those sorts of things is it that easy or is there more to it? It's a commitment, right? We're really talking about a commitment. We're talking about making a change that you're going to be able to sustain. We're all human, so there's going to be a nibble here or there maybe of something you shouldn't have. But it's trying to actually make that long-term commitment to, to a healthy diet that is really low in saturated fats and uh, nice green leafy vegetables or a part of your daily, uh, part of your daily diet, um, and it certainly can be done. Uh, it just it does require a commitment. But again, when we think about the long term and how we want to live our life, we think about the consequences of not making that decision of having a heart attack or maybe developing heart failure, and it makes it a little easier to make the to make the right call. We're talking with Dr. Heather Ross, Division Head of Cardiology at Peter Monk Cardiac Center and the site lead for Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research. As a, a final subject when we were talking with mark baines we talked about the canadian heart failure patient and caregiver charter and that we didn't really have a lot of people who before heart life foundation came in were really advocating for what needed to be done if we're to talk about a national standard of care what is that first off and then we'll talk about why it's important so what would be a national standard of care when we were talking about our hearts well, I think HeartLife has done a tremendous job with their charter, and it is clearly laid out and can be seen on their website. We need to have equitable access to the highest level of care for all. We shouldn't be aiming for a floor. Uh, we should be reaching for the bar, and we have to set that bar 
based on what is evidence-based and guideline-based, and everybody should have access to that level of care, and that doesn't exist right now. Why doesn't that exist? Well, there are, there are barriers to it. Um, there are geographic barriers that can limit. I think one major barrier is patients may not even know about what is available, and this is where Heart Life's Charter becomes so important. A knowledgeable patient who can actually advocate for their care and advocate to, to get the best care, which is their, their, their right, uh, I think is extremely important. I think it, we need to remember that the patient is at the center of care. They, they are the drivers of care. Uh, and uh, so I just, again, want to congratulate HeartLife for the document. I think it's extremely important uh, for patients to learn what is available to them. For going forward, do you have a hope that we reach a national standard of care? Is this a, a big picture dream that will take a long time and a lot of people pulling in the same direction? So I, I guess I would come back to hope is not a plan um, and a goal uh, without a plan is just a wish. And so we need a plan. And between the Heart Life, Canadian Heart Failure Society, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society and Heart and Stroke, this can get done. Um, it does require strong voices committed to change, and I think we can, marshal, uh, we can marshal that team together and make this happen. And what would that mean for this country, just the assurance that no matter who you are, no matter where you live, that you would have the ability to get that care that you may need if you were diagnosed with heart failure? Does it come down to something that would seem that simple? Uh, that's exactly what it is. And, and I think, why does it matter from a national perspective? It matters because that best standard of care improves outcomes. We have clear evidence for that. It improves the quality of life for the patient, and it improves their survival. So th- it, is, it is that simple, and, and it is that right to have. And it will make a difference in recognizing how our healthcare system works. If we can improve those outcomes, we can actually redirect money through reducing hospitalizations uh, into other aspects of our healthcare system. So this is, this is a crucial way for us to improve both the quality of care in this country, but also the value of that care. Dr. Ross, where do you think it starts? Well, it starts with taking the first step, and I think uh, HeartLife has done that uh, with their patient charter. Uh, I think it really is a partnership between the patient and the healthcare provider, and I, I really strongly advocate for a well-informed patient. So I'm really excited to see this charter. Well, you have certainly helped us to understand more about what is going on in the world of heart health, and we really appreciate that. Continued success. Keep up the good work. And, Dr. Ross, please stay safe. Thanks so much. Take care. Dr. Heather Ross is a heart failure doctor, division head in cardiology at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center at UHN, and recently named the Order of Canada. And if you're looking for that Canadian Heart Failure Patient and Caregiver Charter, we've mentioned a couple of times during these segments, you can find that at heartlife.ca, where it is advocating for what is needed right now. And if enough voices get going, this is similar to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when it comes to being on opiates to deal with pain, when there is a solution out there that maybe isn't covered by insurance, maybe isn't the number one solution, and that is talking with individuals who are making use of cannabis, and they're, they're you know by their own accounts, they're finding that this is working better. 
what is the pandemic allowing us to do? Examine things and say, hey, how's this working? Could it be better? And here is what's been put together by HeartLife when it comes to our own heart health. Today actually doesn't feel like February. At least it didn't about an hour ago. You could walk out and go, what is this? This is It's spring. It's This is good. John Wilson is warning us we're getting snowed on later tonight, and then it is going to get cold going into next week. It will feel cold, but it will feel like February again. February has that, oh, yeah, it's it's still winter, and it's, uh, it's, it's the freezing my nostril kind of winter. But you know what that means in an Olympic year? It brings back... These memories, you can think, especially if you were involved in the Olympics in any way, and I know that there are only a select few people who can say they were involved in the Olympics in any way, but it can bring back those memories, this time of year. They're very strong. Joining us right now is a man who knows an awful lot about going to the Olympics and winning gold at the Olympics and winning gold at the Worlds is... An incredibly decorated Olympian, along with Tessa Virtue. Please welcome Scott Moyer to London Life. Scott, how are things? Yeah, things are great. Thank you so much for having me on here. Hey, well, thanks for being here. When what, you walk outside, can you do get I that? Say first time, long time. Is that what I'm? <laughs> maybe it's. I always you can. <laughs> you, okay, if if you want to be first time, long time, yeah, I think you it's know what? Actually, not at my first time, so second or third time, but still a long time, Mike. <laughs> I still remember when you and Tessa were. I think Tessa was seven and you were nine, and we sat down to have a chat. That's going back a ways. Yeah, I wanted. I would like to know uh, the betting odds that you would have placed on on those two kids going to <laughs> skating for twenty two years and. And three, uh, you know, three different Olympic games. I don't think they would have been that strong. I think at the Elderton Skating Club where we got our start, uh, it was more laughing at us than than with us during those days. But uh, come on, yeah. you had you, <laughs> hey, that's you a, had coaches and and you had people like your parents who were saying, no, no, there's there's something special here, and it ended up that there was something incredibly special. When did you two actually start to think, you know? Maybe there is something here. Good question. Um, but I, I don't know if I really know the answer. I mean, the, the scary thing for Tessa, I think, more so is that she doesn't even remember her life uh, without me, really. And uh, in the beginning stages of our career, the goal was, especially for me, I mean, there was this this little girl who waltzed into the Illusion Skating Club and all of a sudden her axle was bigger than mine and she was two years younger than me and she could skate faster and dance better and remember steps. So um, I think for the first two or three years of skating together, I didn't think that we were on the same team. I was literally trying to compete against her and not be embarrassed. And um, when I finally put it together that, oh, we're on the same team here and this is this is a positive um, that's kind of when we, we started to have some pretty early success. And uh, we, we I joke, but we were lucky to have some coaches uh, that, that were able to uh, bring the best out of us and believe in us. And, uh, yeah, I mean, skating always clicked with Tessa and I. And I think as much as I do love the sport of ice dance, um, it was all about the connection Tessa and I had. And uh, we, were, we were in sync. Uh, there's not much... Uh, of a different way to say it. We always had the same goals. Uh, we always wanted to win. We always wanted to be the best that we could be. And we always respected and were each other's biggest fans. And now looking back, 
uh, we kind of realized just how fortunate we, we were. But, um, I mean, that was just our life. That's We never really had it any other way. Scott Meyer joining us on London Live. Well, the two of you grew from being those two at the Elderton Skating Club and being partners and then all of a sudden being two people who, when the world looked and saw your faces, they knew Canada, that, that mm-hmm. you became those, those Canadian icons, those Canadian faces. Do you still feel that, or did you ever feel that? Is that something just the rest of us fans feel? That's a good question. I don't. Um, I, I always saw that as such a compliment, um, even when people uh, would say, kind of jokingly, "Oh, you're so Canadian." I even saw that as, "You're damn right, I am." Uh, you know, that was such a compliment for for both Tessa and I, and obviously. Uh, there was a great deal of pride. I remember our one of our first coaches, uh, Paul McIntosh, one of the things that he used to do is, is give us these little Canadian flags, um, and we would put them on the heel of our skates. And so wherever we went, people would know that we were Canadian. I think at some level he instilled that in us to, to really uh, be grateful for, uh, I mean, the opportunities that we have, but what Canada uh, stands for and, uh, you know, hearing Canada behind our name. And we said that at the end of our career and being able to walk into uh, an opening ceremony at Olympic Games carrying the flag is probably one of the biggest honours of our lives. But, uh, you know, that, that never got old. I, I can say that. And that, that we um, we never took that for granted. And, and even still, I mean, just to be able to uh, see that flag. And um, I just started wearing all my Olympic gear again. I think I'm... I'm missing the Olympics, you know, with Tokyo not going last year and Beijing just around the corner. Um, you know, I, I've I've kind of started to embrace all the opportunities and, and yeah, as I said, really not taking it for granted that we're able to represent uh, this great country on a global scale. You mentioned being the flag bearers. What are the emotions when, when you're waiting? Because we see the parade of athletes and everybody's in step and everybody's waving and smiling, but in behind before you come out, everybody's kind of grouped together. What are the emotions you feel? Are there nerves knowing you have to carry the flag? Do you, do you worry that something might happen or is it just all excitement and elation? Yeah, I don't, that's a good question. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know. I, I knew I had confidence. I didn't have nerves because test. I, we knew that Tess was going to carry uh, the flag, or the holster, and um, I was going to be there with her. And I think we actually both kind of carried it together. So in my mind, I didn't have a lot of nerves. But I will say um, one of the greatest, um, I guess, accomplishments of our career was to just be a part of the Olympic team. And that's when it became real for me. You know, like I, I never felt like an Olympian uh, per se, until I looked around and, and saw who I was colleagues with. Uh, Mick Kingsbury, Patrick Chan, uh, yeah, like all these fantastic, Rebecca Johnson, all these great, great Olympians. Uh, and looking behind me and seeing their faces and knowing um, that we were walking in together. I mean, that was more the overwhelming feeling. I can't believe uh, that we got picked uh, to stand out in that group. But then I would look over at Tessa and it made sense. You know, for me to carry the flag didn't make sense, but for T, it made perfect sense. Who else would do it? So I think that was kind of uh, um, that was kind of the idea of walking in and the feeling of walking in in the Olympics. And there was really forty athletes that could have carried that flag in, and 
um, we were such a very, very close Olympic team. And I think that grew exponentially every game we went to together. It started with on the podium and, you know, trying to change the mindset of Canadian athletes in Vancouver going into to Sochi, um, where actually figure skating, we didn't have a, that great of a game. And, and then kind of going back in uh, to conquer, conquer the world in Pyeongchang. And we just kind of grew these relationships and we relied on each other in all different sports curling, hockey, speed skating, downhill skiing. Um, we just had these relationships. Uh, and, and kudos to the COC and, and different corporations like B210 for getting us together so we could rely on each other. And we were a true team. Uh, so while walking in and, and representing Canada, but also being a part of that group is, uh, yeah, it's just such a huge honor. And I, I still, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Also a little bit of sadness, you know, thinking about Beijing and, um, you know, our time as athletes has passed, but looking forward, um, I think it will be a very, very um, sweet moment to, to watch this next generation of athletes, you know, starting um, starting their own Olympic experience and, and remember just how fortunate we were to have three of our own. Scott Moyer joining us as we talk Olympics and more, and we'll talk about what you're up to now, but you, you're bringing back so many great memories and, and you're bringing back the, just the idea of, you know, what, what this country means and how you were part of us being able to say, you know, it's okay to say we're Canadian and, and we want to be the best and we want our athletes to win and we don't have to be polite and open the door for anybody else. And it's, it's good to celebrate people who are on the top of the podium and all of that stuff that, that was a part of your careers. You were involved in the My Home is Canada campaign recently. What did that do for you? Yeah, I was, you know, like many people, and I, I'll first say that uh, through COVID-19, uh, my family and loved ones, unfortunate. Um, no one has... Uh, been severely affected um everyone obviously is being diligent and is at home but everyone in my family and uh, most of my friends are healthy and safe and so in that way it's been fortunate so i don't mean because i know that people are going through some real struggles and have lost loved ones and are are really at the front line of this that's not not the case uh for me but it was 2020 was a tough year um me and my uh, fiance jackie you know, we postponed our wedding and our kind of our future plans a little bit and um, we were supposed to be going uh, a little bit back and forth from, from St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, but we wanted to get back home and back here. She's from Kamoka and me from Elderton and, and start our, our own family here. So there were some challenges that kind of came with that. And, uh, you know, th- I mean, that was a little bit challenging. I'm not going to give the woe me uh, the speech, but at the same time, flipping the calendar in 2021, I knew – I wanted to do something uh, that was uplifting and to celebrate really what we had and uh, and it kept kind of dawning on me just how fortunate we are to be Canadian and how fortunate we are to have this beautiful, diverse country and uh, with, you know, that's, that's has many different corners and uh, Tessa and I touring the country uh, for so many years, were fortunate enough to have friends in, in all of these different corners and understand that what makes, Canada beautiful um, and strong is our diversity and, and um, how everybody has, comes from different walks of life. And so that's kind of what this was about. Uh, and I was very happy to join with, 
with Clubhouse, who, as you know, is a is a huge staple in the London community. I mean, they've been in that community for over 137 years. So when they called me and they they asked to do this campaign, which was highlighting what it means for people to be Canadian, you know, you give a send a picture of being outside in the snow or being up north at the lakes or out in Newfoundland or Victoria and. Um, or just food or being with people. And there was a lot of great, uh, you know, Toronto Blue Jays and Olympic memories as well that was kind of heartwarming. So we just kind of brought those together. And, and they're going to make a, a digital montage. And I'm I'm making sure that they give me a hard copy. I want to put it up on my wall here in my office. But, uh, you know, it was a very, very simple movement, but very powerful, I think, as well. And for me, I, I got out and I was kind of like, OK, I better do something. You know, I got to walk the walk here. If I'm finally going to be doing some stuff on social media, I can't just be uh, telling everyone to do it and not do it. So I got out and had a winter fire and I was like, oh, I better go build the fire and sit by the fire and take these pictures. And then all of a sudden, before I knew it, I was like, oh, this is nice. You know, it's nice to be outdoors. It's nice to be able to enjoy as I said, what Canada has to offer. So it was really refreshing uh, as well, even though I had kind of started to uplift other people and maybe give them some hope. And even if it's just a little project, uh, you know, I ended up doing the same for myself. Nice. Scott Moyer joining us. Scott, before we close out, what are you up to now? Are, are you are you going to the other side, the coaching side of things? I am indeed, yeah. So I, I hadn't really expected to do that, but... Uh, after our career finished, our, our our two our two years in Montreal training under uh, Mary Frances Dubray and Patrice Lazon and Roman Hagenauer were were very very fulfilling for Tessa and I. It was uh, about being the best we could be. You know, we worked with a great corporation in B210 who insulated us with the best professionals, and they challenged us every day to be our best and to go for the gold ruthlessly. And um, that was fantastic. And uh, but. As well, on the ice, our, our coaching staff challenged us to be better people and challenged us to, to do sport the right way and to uplift your, our teammates and be there for each other. And um, I can say it was the most beautiful sport experience of our life. And there's a lot of great uh, or not so great stories uh, in the media right now about how sport is just done so poorly and people uh, in a position of power taking advantage of athletes and I can say fortunately that that wasn't the case for us. And especially at the end, it was, it was the opposite. They really lifted us up and allowed us to live beautiful, fulfilling athletic lives, which have transferred over. So now, um, now I'm partnering with that school in Montreal and we're trying to bring it here to the London area. Um, not trying, we're going to bring it here to the London area. They're mentoring us, our coaching staff. We have a bunch of really good coaches. Um, you know, a lot of people watch the Olympic Games. We're fans of Tess and I, uh, and we're seeing more and more boys that are starting to figure skate. And uh, when I saw the amount of uh, young men that were figure skating at the club, it kind of dawned on me that, okay, I guess I better get back in and, and see you know, how it feels to help them out. And so working, um, you know, with the people who started us skating, my aunt and my mom, and uh, we were able to start the school. And now we are at an ice academy in Montreal uh, campus here, Um you know, right right now we're in Kamoka and we'll be in and around the city trying to build a world elite uh, ice dance school uh, for people to come. Hopefully, instead of us, like Tess and I always had to train in Detroit. Uh, we were deciding whether to go to Lyon, France or Moscow, Russia to our next school and ended up luckily being able to go to Montreal. So we want to give kids from the greatest skating country uh, in the world, Canada, and, and from a great skating area in the southwestern Ontario hub, the opportunity 
to excel right at home and in the right way. So that's what we're doing with this whole movement. For me, it's very exciting. Uh, I didn't know if after a 22-year career, I would wake up excited to go into the arena again. And my feet hit the floor running in the morning. I just can't wait to get there. I'm having so much fun with the kids. And I talked to T the other day, and I think we're going to get her back out on the ice. I mean, she's busy taking over the world and crushing it. But, uh, you know, her genius, uh, she needs to bring that to, to the world of figure skating. I haven't worked with anybody still yet to this day that's quite like Tessa. So that's the point of the whole project. I've got a lot of work to do, Mike, if I'm going to get there. Um, but I'm lucky that I have a good team around us. Well, that's fantastic. Scott, this has been great catching up. Congratulations on everything that you are doing. And like you say, 2021, yeah, it's, it's, it's off to a, a different feel, and, and it's going to get a whole lot better. So, again, thanks for the time, Scott. Keep yourself safe. Say hi to your family, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, thank you. Same to you. I'm hopefully we'll get to see you at a night game here coming up. Let's hope so. All Come right. up and say hi. I will for All sure. right. Take care. Bye, Mike. That is Scott Moyer. That is a guy who makes a difference. And just the the infectious attitude that he and Tessa have carried with them and the hard work that they know how to put in. Could you imagine? I mean, look at where they did have to go to train at times. You know, if if you're hitting a certain level, you've got to find where that level is. And they were. And to be able to open a school and, and have more skaters come out of this area, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great thing. Thanks to Scott. The International Olympic Committee came out publicly last week and... The idea was that they are pushing toward having a games in 2021 in Tokyo, and right now they're scheduled for this summer, as opposed to not having a games. Joining us right now from the Center for Olympic Studies here in London at Western University is the director of that center, Dr. Angela Schneider. Dr. Schneider, how are things going? Um, pretty well, you know, given the situation for everyone. At least the sun's shining today somewhat. That has made a big difference the last couple of days. And I know it's supposed to be cold next week, but at least it is supposed to be sunny. Although February does bring that little chill of, hey, this is this is Olympic time every four <laughs> years in the winter. Now we're, we're still wondering about Tokyo 2021. When you sit back and listen to what is being said, what's catching your ear, Dr. Schneider? Well, first of all, the timing for the release of this playbook um, seems to be logically following the announcement that came in the British newspaper, The Times, from an unnamed uh, Japanese government official that the Olympics are going to be cancelled. So this is clearly a response, it seems, to this, uh, if you look at the timing. And it looks like it's uh, the IOC and the Tokyo organizers attempting to assure the public and uh, and the athletes. Uh, so now, it, they, when you think of a playbook, right, we usually think of something with quite a bit of detail, and it's, it's clear that that's not where they're at right now with this. It, it's more of a framework right now, and they, they say that too. Um, so they, but they wanted to get something out there to make people understand how hard they're trying to work to, to get this to go. So 
even if it is a, a response, do you feel that it's a legitimate response? This is this is not just somebody coming out making a statement saying, oh, by the way, we've also put together this framework, we'll call it a playbook, and everything is, is still trying to get things done. Does that make it seem like it's a little bit more than, oh, no, no, no that's wrong, we're still working on this? I think so. You know, and also the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, has also supported this. And yes, you you probably know from the past, they don't always just side with the IOC or say the same thing on all matters. Um, You know, they had a standalone position on the Russian uh, doping scandal. So I think that, in fact, it's meant to be a, a serious response. And there's been a number of sports events being held, and they're claiming they've learned a lot from these events and that they've got some important details. So they do give some idea. You know, they're talking about athletes being tested every four days after they arrive in Japan, and they're encouraged to come five days before their event and then to leave fairly soon, two days after the event. And they've got, um, you know, they're going to do testing before they leave their country. They're going to do a test when they arrive in Japan. And so there's a, it does seem that they are trying to put as much detail, comprehensive detail, that they can right now. When we look at the money side of things, there is a lot of money that is accumulated through the rights fees and through all sorts of things for hosting the Olympics. Do you think that's a major discussion? Is it a secondary discussion? Where would the dollars sit in this, Dr. Schneider? I I think it's one of the the major discussions. I, I don't know if it's the major discussion because I do believe the Japanese leadership on this particular topic, particularly from the organizing committee, are extremely serious about trying to make this happen. So, you know, we had the uh, Yoshira Mori, the president of the Tokyo Organizing Committee, and a, a former Japanese prime minister saying, uh, no matter what the situation would be with the coronavirus, we will hold the games. So I do think there's a sense of pride and a sense of commitment and a sense of this is going to happen, determine, determination. Uh, but on the financial side, obviously, okay, so there's the revenue that um, from the television rights and the broadcasting rights, but also there's a really big uh, question mark about whether or not people are going to be able to use their tickets or purchase more tickets because there's no confirmation yet in this playbook on whether fans from abroad can attend. So right now, they're just speculating about fans that live in Japan attending, and even them, you know, they're talking about they've got to make a decision about the numbers of spectators, the proportions of spectators in a stadium, or if they're going to let any spectators in from outside of the country of Japan. So, so the, for from the point of view of selling tickets and, and that sort of revenue generation, that one is really up in the air. We're talking with Dr. Angela Schneider, Director of the International Center for Olympic Studies in the School of Kinesiology and the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. Dr. Schneider, one thing that was raised this week was healthcare providers in Japan saying, we, we're exhausted. And that's something that seemed to at least become a headline. How big is that component of the Olympics? Because sure, you would think, okay, you need first aid on site, but are there a lot of healthcare workers that would be involved? Well, because of this situation, you know, you really need to be prepared. Uh, And so, you know, and I think it's a fair comment. Uh, Healthcare workers around the world are exhausted. 
And, you know, I think also this playbook and the story about it is also meant to go some ways to try and convince the Japanese public themselves, because as you probably heard, the polls across Japan recently showed 80% were saying they want a postponement or cancellation because they were very unsure. So so having the health uh, professionals saying these things can't help uh, the confidence of the general Japanese public because ultimately if somebody gets sick, that's where they're going to have to go, right? So, you know, they have to have some backup plan and some preparedness and it may be that maybe there has to be uh, reinforcement brought into this area as well to to really make it clear that all safety precautions are going to be covered, including dealing with personnel who are exhausted. Last year, Dr. Schneider, it seemed... Seems almost easy. You know, it wasn't ideal, but, well, we'll take the 2020 Summer Games. We'll move them to 2021, because certainly by summer of 2021, this will all be different. And now there are still those major question marks. You can't move it to 2022, can you? No, no, I don't think so. You know, we've got the, the Beijing Winter Olympics of 2022 scheduled for February, which is only six months after. Uh, you've got the Paris Games for 2024. You've got all the other sports, FIFA and other World Cups and things. So it would make it extraordinarily difficult. I think that if they do not happen this year, that it will probably be the case most likely if you look at the probabilities that it's a cancellation. How long do you think they have before they have to make a decision, Dr. Schneider? Well, I think the timing is looking like the discussion last year, you know, when the timing came, uh, when they started saying when they're going to have to make a decision. I'd be very surprised if they don't make a decision before the end of March, because they also have the torch relay starting. The Olympic torch relay starts in March, and I think the timing of that event is really meant to launch this. And also, People have to be able to prepare. Uh, it's not something, you know, they're talking about uh, detailing how they're going to bring in 15,400 athletes into Japan and out of Japan with an opening of July 23rd and the Paralympics a month later. So, you know, this cannot be put off indefinitely. Yeah, no doubt. Well, there's still a lot to decide. Do we know whether vaccinations would be required or would it just be testing that would be required for athletes? Have you heard? I haven't heard, but, you know, I've heard some really interesting discussions around this question about vaccinations because, of course, there's some really unlevel playing fields around the world on access to vaccinations, as we've all heard, uh, you know, especially the uh, less wealthy countries having little access. And then what's going to happen for their athletes? Uh, and so this whole question about equity and access is a really big one. So something that I have thought about is, you know, why not follow in some of the principles of the Olympic Games uh, or ideals and saying, you know what, we're going to supply equal access of all vaccinations to all athletes and that that's done through IOC leadership. Why not? Why not? Great question. Why not? No, it uh, it certainly would make things like you say a, a whole lot more level on that playing field. Well, Dr. Schneider, lots of questions and we'll still wait to see what answers do come in. But thank you so much for your attention to this and the update on what is happening. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Angela Schneider, Director of the International Center for Olympic Studies in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Western University. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 